Welcome to our podcast, Leading Past Limits. We share lessons learned from the hard-won experience of mission-driven leaders so that you expand your horizons as a leader that places service before self. I'm Kumar Kibble, a leadership coach and the principal at GuideQuest. I've been passionate about developing leaders since graduating from West Point more than 30 years ago and have led high-performing teams as a military officer, special agent, diplomat, government, and corporate executive. Now I partner with leaders and teams as a coach to help unlock their potential and maximize their impact. In this first season, join me in learning from entrepreneurs, CEOs, Army generals, police chiefs, war heroes, thought leaders, and more. Be sure to subscribe and don't miss out on lessons learned from the real world School of Hard Knocks. Our guest today is Brigadier General Patrick Houston, the Assistant Judge Advocate General for Military Law and Operations in the Pentagon. His responsibilities include a focus on the legal and ethical development and use of artificial intelligence, autonomous weapons, cybersecurity, and other emerging technologies. He also supports diversity and inclusion initiatives as part of talent management for the JAG Corps, one of the world's largest legal organizations. General Houston started his military career as an Army Ranger and helicopter pilot in Europe. He then attended law school and became a military prosecutor. He's completed five combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan and has been the staff judge advocate of three major organizations, including the Joint Special Operations Command, or JSOC. He previously served as a commanding general of the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, the federal government's only ABA-accredited law school, and he supervised the Army's Global Trial Defense Service. Some additional background and perhaps most important to his career development, we were in the same company for four years at West Point, so he could directly observe what not to do in his growth as a leader. <laughs> Pat, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kumar. It's fantastic to see you again. It's great to be here. So let's start with what motivated you to go to West Point? You know, I was just too young to really make a decision for myself. I just I read a book about West Point called The West Point Story when I was in junior high. And I got this image in my mind that that's what I wanted to do. That's where I wanted to go. And with a singular focus, I just decided to uh, pursue that and ended up going there. You know, West Point has been affectionately described as a quarter of a million dollar education shoved up one's bottom a nickel at a time. So uh, what was the top like a penny at a time to me? <laughs> What was the toughest challenge you faced while you were there? You know, I, I was so excited to go there. I was ready for it. I was expecting like intense difficulty. And there certainly was that, but it was all tolerable. What I didn't really anticipate was just the chronic nature of it, like how over the length of time of that first difficult year and four years, just how the, the duration would really get to you. Just, the, you know, the, the marathon nature of the, of the difficulty, that was just surprising to me. I was expecting more intense, uh, acute pain. Yeah, you know, you know, I think for me, it was kind of a psychological in the sense of uh, you just, um, there's so many talented people that are around you and uh, just realizing that I, I, I wasn't as, as great as I thought I was. <laughs> yeah, we all had that realization, come on. <laughs> what, uh, well, what, what else did you learn about yourself there? You talk about the chronic thing, but what did you learn about yourself personally in going through that experience? For, for me, I learned about the fact that there were a lot of different people from around the country. You know, we all go to our high schools, where, wherever we're from. I was from Southern California, where, where I was from, I knew that. But when you go to, to college with people from all 50 states and you realize there are a lot of different peoples with a, a lot of different people with a lot of different backgrounds, 
and that the world's a different place than your hometown in most cases. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I felt that as well, experienced that as well. What um, we, they describe West Point as a leadership laboratory. We have the opportunity to kind of practice, learn concepts and principles and practice and apply them in various assignments as cadets. What was your more, most important takeaway in, about leading others? Just the difficulty of it. You know, I, I will say that like you, it wasn't, I didn't find it to be an enjoyable experience for the entire four years. You, you, you gave your coin analogy there and I completely agree with it. Uh, but the truth is I have to give it credit. I really do think they do a good job of training you on leadership because that really is a focus there. And it, that focus I find to be pretty rare. Not a lot of places really focus on the leadership aspects of one's job. I know that leadership is sort of central to a military officer's job, but the truth is leadership is kind of permeates society or the need for leadership permeates society, but not other, not all other professions do it that well. And so I, I think that the, the, the quality of the training that we got was very good. You know, I, I, I like your point in terms of just how it extends beyond uh, the military and because leadership is, is not just about formal authority. It's about, I, I like to say also informal influence that, that comes from character and credibility and uh, and the trust that one inspires in another. Um, it, you know, it, on that, on that yeah. point, I, I've got to yeah. say, I think we have it much easier in the military because of the formal authority, because of the rank structure. It's so hierarchical that it, and clear that leadership is easier in some regards in, in the military than it is elsewhere where it's, it's a less formal structure. Yeah. Well, so one of the interesting things is, right, at, at Ranger School, you strip off the rank. And, uh, and you have to exercise uh, in a number of different roles and evolutions, um, leadership, uh, you know, of, of essentially of peers. Um, so what was, what was that like for you? And what was, what was toughest for you at Ranger School? Oh, you know, I, 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 like everyone who's been to Ranger School, you realize it's, it's hard. And it, it, that same lesson that I talked about West Point being a, a chronic challenge, mm -hmm. Ranger school was the same way. We Everyone goes to Ranger school completely fit, ready to go, physically ready for whatever they're going to throw at you. Now, of course, with the lack of sleep and lack of food and the exercise, you, that that is all gone within a week. Um, but it's the mental agility. It's the mental strength that, that it really, I, I underestimated the need for that before going there and realized that you have to be in it for the long haul. You have to be able to persevere through some tough situations for day after day after day without an end in sight. Yeah. You, one of the things that struck me was just the um, the importance of intestinal fortitude like of the gut check, because you could see people that are super fit, as you indicated, or muscular kind of going in. And you think that what well, these guys have got it. Uh, and and sometimes you take away someone's food and sleep and, and um, they can become different people as as they start to satisfy that basic rung of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. <laughs> Yeah, no, you see, you see people crumble there. I tell you, I had a warn. My dad warned me before I went to ranger school that you have to be ready for them to throw these mental twists at you, like extend just when you think you're done with this massive uh, long march, uh, with carrying your backpacks. You get back, you think you're all done, and then they tell you you need to go five more miles. And it's that uh, messing with your mind in that regard that can be really tough to take when you're tired and hungry and exhausted and just fed up. Um, and just just but expecting that I think is is helpful. Yeah, there, there's there's a premium on remaining resilient, right? Through that chronic challenge, are there particularly stra particular strategies that you've leveraged over the years to remain resilient through challenge and setback and adversity? 
Only ones that I've leveraged well or ones that I've leveraged well? <laughs> let's, always- let's focus on the ones you've done well. <laughs> oh, well, that's a much shorter list. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, of, of course, you just learn. You, you have to learn about yourself. You have to learn about others. You have to be more patient. I'm not a particularly patient na- person by nature, and I've had to learn to be patient, patient with myself, um, and, and really plan things out for the long haul, plan for the marathon out there as you go through difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, what about uh, routines? Are there, you know, people talk about components of resilience in terms of uh, physical uh, well-being, uh, mental well-being, spiritual well-being, um, having a sense of meaning and purpose, social relationships, a social tap code that Admiral Stockdale referred to when he was in the Hanoi Hilton for seven years. Um, do you have any like hacks or routines that help to kind of keep you keep you uh, going and, and uh, you know, adaptable? And- for, for me, Kumar, it, it really is just having a routine. I'm very much a creature of habit. I wake up at the same time every morning. I do the, the I have the same, you know, I get a coffee. I, I check out email. I check out the news. I do the same workout. I have the exact same breakfast smoothie every single day. I have my to-do list, which I go through, which for me is just, uh, it's very soothing to know that everything I have to do is on a to-do list. So I can look at my to-do list, I can prioritize and I can you know, start getting after the day. So for me, a routine is very reassuring. Mm-hmm. I know that everyone's different and I, I've learned that you, you need to have your routine that works for you and that my routine is not going to work for you. But I will just tell you that my routine works for me. And that's what, what I've found some comfort and solace in knowing that I do the same thing each day and I, it's a somewhat predictable outcome. Yeah, I, I I like what you said in terms of just kind of the how it's got to be unique and personal to the to the individual. It's got to fit your own hand like a glove in terms of whatever yeah. your your situation in life is. Um, well, let, let's talk about like mentoring and um, who influenced you the most as a leader. You know, there are a lot of fantastic leaders. Well, of course, we've all been influenced by great leaders and some in other cases, not so great leaders. But you can learn good things from all of them. I had one leader when I was a young lieutenant, a young officer. I was probably 24 years old. He was just a, a superb leader. Uh, his name was Major Tom Young. Um, and he just, for me, he was the person that really helped you know, demonstrate what a great leadership, strong leadership looked like. What, give, me, give me some examples of, of that. What, what really stands out in terms of what he modeled? Do you, do you mind if I just tell you a story about him? Yeah, please, please. Okay, well. We were in, I was in an aviation unit when I, when I first graduated from West Point and went to flight school and went, reported to my first unit, I was a pilot in Germany. And I was there for probably a year when we got this new officer in our battalion. Uh, so our battalion has probably 500 people and 50 helicopters. But we got this new uh, major in, Major Tom Young. That's this guy I'm talking about. He was the number two for our battalion. He was, he was coming from a really famous aviation unit. And I'll say that our unit in Germany was probably just an, an average, mediocre, regular unit, but he was coming from a really uh, elite outfit. He got there and probably a month after he got there, he announced uh, that he wanted to do a major uh, operation with all 50 helicopters, a huge operation at, at one time. And I think everyone was initially a little skeptical, but he said, don't worry, we're not gonna do this all at once. We're gonna take about six months to train to do this. And I've done some research and this will be the biggest helicopter operation ever done in Europe. And so he kind of set this goal out there. There's a little ambitious for all of us, but everyone got on board and we set up a training plan. And for six months, each month, we do a little more complex of an operation. We'd add more helicopters, add more stops. 
and we're working our way up to it. I, I was one of his assistants who was helping him plan this thing. And I'll tell you that about two weeks before this operation was supposed to happen, he came to me and said, Lieutenant, I want you to give the air mission brief for, for this operation. Now, let me pause for a second and say that the air mission brief is a big deal. And it's normally, in a case like this, it would be done by the colonel, especially for an operation of this size. Uh, maybe he as the major would do it, but it's not going to be done by a lieutenant. And I was like, are you sure? And he said, yep, you're going to do it. But, but don't worry. Uh, we're going to do a rehearsal next week to make sure you're ready. So, okay. So I go and you know, I'm, I'm flattered uh, that he is thinking I might be able to do this, but also very nervous. So I just work and study and practice. I learn every single detail about this operation and I plan and prepare. And so a, a week before the operation. Can I, can, so let me just ask you, how, what kind of time investment was that to master the, that all the intricacies and the details? I would say it would probably took up half of my work time for that week leading up to it. Right, so right, like yeah. Significant investment at the time. Right. Like I really wanted to get this right. And I, and so I went in standing in front of him to do my rehearsal and I went through every single detail, every flight route, every frequency we we're going to call in on every contingency. If a helicopter goes down, we're going to do this. If we have maintenance problems, we're going to do this. If we run out of gas, we'll do this. We have a backup gas station for the helicopters over here, every single detail, every contingency. And I was ready. So I went through it all with them. And when I got to the end of it, like I knew I had nailed it. You know, you know, when you just know you've nailed it. And he looked at me and he said, that was terrible. And I was crushed. I was really, I, when I realized he was serious, I, I was really crushed. And he said, listen, he said, I, I can tell you've worked hard. I know you know your stuff. He said, but you have to keep your audience in mind. Mm. You know this mission inside and out, but your audience is just hearing this for the first time. He said, so you've got to go through the mission from A to Z, the way you want the mission to go if everything goes perfectly. Then and only then, when they understand how things are supposed to work, do you go back and start working through the contingencies, the what ifs, the helicopter crashes or the running out of gas or the lost frequencies. And as soon as he said that, it made perfect sense to me. Uh, and so I went back, I, I redid the whole presentation according to his plan. The presentation went fine. The operation went fine uh, the following week. So everything went fine. But for me, that is just, I learned so many lessons over the course of, of that operation with Tom. You know, first and foremost, a leader has to have a vision and be able to articulate that mission, that vision. And he set this vision that seemed, you know, really high, but it was very clear. The biggest operation that's ever been done in Europe. So he sets that out there. We go out there, we do that. The second thing I'll say is that you have to empower your teammates, especially your junior teammates. And, and he did that. He let a lieutenant do something that a lieutenant had no business doing. And I certainly mm -hmm. didn't, have, as evidenced by my performance uh, on that first rehearsal. And then he, came, then he came in and he provides brutally honest feedback. We all know as bosses, that's hard to do. It's easy yeah. to tell people they're doing a great job. It's hard to tell people they're not doing well, but it's important if you really wanna help them get to the next level out there. Um, the other thing I'll say is the other message that, that I learned was you've got to tailor your message, tailor your briefing to the audience. Mm -hmm. And that was painfully obvious to me there. But, it, uh, you know, I, I came back to that later in life. And then finally, the last thing on here is the importance of rehearsals. Practice mm -hmm. makes perfect. We all know that we've heard that our entire lives, but it, it really demonstrated the importance of, of a rehearsal to me.
So those are those are some key points. And what is intriguing to me is is you're you're serving in a in a an aviation unit, but at some point you make a decision to go to law school and then uh, become a military prosecutor. So how do those lessons translate into an entirely different field? What and what else, you know what did how did Major Tom's influence? What did you carry from that into this new endeavor? You know, I think almost all of those lessons carry forward. They, they tra- for me, most of them translate very well into any leadership role that you have. I, you, I, after law school, I became a criminal prosecutor, and there's not a single time that I was going in front of a jury that I didn't stop and say, "Hey, wait, listen, I've been, I've been." dealing with this case, studying this case for months now, leading up to the prosecution. But that jury is about to hear what I'm going to say for the very first time. And I've got to keep that in mind and tell a very clear story for them uh, that is different than the perspective that I have at this point. And and so that's just one example of it. But really, all of these leadership lessons, I think, carry over into into just not only what I've done as an attorney, but what just about any leader out there uh, can do. Well, let me let me ask you as far as because you talked about the brutal and candid and direct feedback he gave you and, and you comment and it's true how how difficult it can be to um, to, to be direct with folks and give them the feedback they need to hear. Um, how has that played out in your, you know, as a lawyer, as a, as a as a military lawyer and as a leader of lawyers, because you not only, you know, did the. He functioned as a, as a first-line prosecutor, but then went on to lead at, at the top levels of the JAG Corps. So. Well, you know, lawyers are, are for the, with, you know, the exception of me, they tend to be really smart people. They, they, they've pushed themselves, they've succeeded, and they tend to think fairly highly of themselves. You know, so they, there's a lot of self-confidence out there among most right. lawyers. Not a, not a group that, that, that just, you know, really needing a lot of, uh, of self-validation. Mm-hmm. So, they don't always take criticism well, and so you're, you're. But I think it's important that we all know that we can do better, and so you don't want to be unnecessarily brutal. Uh, but that sort of honesty and, and delivered in a way that helps them realize that they can do better, I think yeah. we all benefit from that. I know I did, and I think the most other people are, are similar in that regard. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about? Uh, I want to kind of. JSOC, your your role is a. I mean, I, I, it's probably not intuitive to folks in terms of the role of of lawyers at at JSOC. Um, and for those in the audience that aren't as familiar with Joint Special Operations Command, I mean that uh, they they include our special operations forces that execute missions around the world. And uh, um, so, what what could you share with us about your specific role at JSOC? My role was just to serve as the legal advisor. That's, that's you know nothing too crazily interesting about my role there. But I will tell you, for me, it was very formative. I loved the experience there uh, two, for two reasons mainly. The first of all is just the quality and caliber of the people you're with. It really is the finest organization that I can imagine serving in because they can pick and choose the finest uh, personnel officer from the entire Department of Defense and say, we're going to pick this person from the Navy because she is the best at that. And then they find the finest intelligence officers and intelligence NCOs. And obviously they have the finest special operators that exist anywhere in the world. You put together a team of people that are all the very best at what they do. And it's really inspiring. It's humbling, 
but it pushes everyone. Like you're like, I just, just to keep up, I'm going to have to go all out just to, just to make sure I don't make a fool of myself here in my role. And you want to do the best that you can. So it's inspiring to work with people who are so very good at what they do. The other thing that I learned there is just the, this, the push for innovation, a real open-mindedness to, to do things differently. And, you know, there's like a cultural indoctrination when you get there, but not in, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, in a good way where they say, listen, we are open to everything. Um, in the meetings, they said, normally we're all from the military where people are particularly rank conscious, but we don't want anyone of any rank uh, to be stifled just because of the rank. Everyone has a voice, no matter what rank you are, and we want you to speak up. We want to hear your ideas. In fact, uh, the people, you know, at the closest to the problems, often the lower ranking folks have better solutions to problems. Yeah. yeah. And they need to have a voice. We can't just say, hey, listen, you're you're just a sergeant. You can't you can't possibly have the, the best idea in the room when the room is filled with with colonels and navy captains. Uh, but the truth is, yes, they can and they often do. And it's just great to see an organization that embraces giving everyone a voice and just says, listen, we're we will never tolerate we're gonna do this because this is the way we've already always done it. Uh, now, if we said we've always done it this way because it's a good idea, well, that's different. And so just seeing a fresh mindset for me was, was, was great. I learned a lot from all the people around me there. When you talk about like you have the finest uh, representatives of their functional areas or whatever coming together in a high-performing team. Um, Patrick Lencioni talks about this uh, the stages of a high-performing team, and you've got trust as a foundation. You've got constructive conflict, uh, constructive, right? Uh, you've got uh, commitment, you know, everyone's voice should be heard, but once a decision's made, everyone needs to rally around that decision. Um, but what I'm really intrigued by is the, the next step is peer-to-peer accountability. And I think in, in a lot of high-performing organizations, um, and this gets back to your earlier comment on feedback, um, you, you have strong peer-to-peer accountability because you have to, you want to measure up, you don't want to let the teammates down. And there, there can also be really kind of candid lateral discussion about, hey, you know, you didn't make you didn't make the mark that time. You got to step up next time. I'm just curious whether you saw that as well. I, I absolutely did. And you said exactly what I was going to say. It's like you don't want to let people down. You see this and it doesn't it's not just in the elite organizations. You see this as kind of the bond that keeps almost every military organization, especially our our war fighting units together. It's that that desire to not let your buddy down. You know, he or she deserves the very best that you have, and, and, and they will in turn give that to you. And that really, I, I agree with you, it's a mark of a high-performing organization. Yeah. One more question on special operations. What what do you think, because it gets a lot of attention more recently, right? I mean, in terms of um, uh, Navy SEALs and, and, uh, and um, other Tier 1 units that operate out there. Um, what would you say is the biggest misconception as someone who has been inside of JSOC about special operations? I would say that it's a, a flawless organization. Uh, and, and that's the misconception. Everyone has shortcomings, but you know, if, if you're working in that high performing team, you can help, um, you can help make up for the shortcomings of each other. You can, if you can recognize your shortcomings or the shortcomings of others, you can step in and fill in the gap and help each other out. And so it's not like it's a, it's a, a team of everyone who's perfect because no one is perfect. We know that. Um, and so the, these ideas that everyone's going to be perfect, it's not. You know, I, I, I'll just I'll leave it at that. OK. Um, I want to turn a little bit to your efforts in. Um, well, you spoke about innovation as, as part of JSOC, but also uh, you oversee 
kind of the legal and ethical implications of emerging technologies. I'd like to ask you specifically about artificial intelligence. How is it envisioned or how is it used in uh, the Department of Defense? And what are the challenges around how it's uh, deployed? Uh, that, that's a really good question. I just, I was at a conference this morning with, um, and the, this, the key speaker was the four-star general, General Mike Murray, who's in charge of the Army Futures Command, a really innovative pioneering leader of an organization that's the same way. And the truth is AI has the power to change a lot of what we think about warfare. Um, so it can really alter. If you got, if you have autonomous weapon systems that can detect and select and engage targets by themselves, that can radically change warfare of the future. And if done right, it can be it can be a positive change. It can actually be a, make my view warfare more humane. So there's a lot of focus on the, this idea of killer robots. Uh, related to that is we are a massive bureaucracy. The Department of Defense, and that's that's no surprise to most of the people here in the Washington D.C. area. Three million people in the Department of Defense, largest employer in America. But we have a we have a lot of systems in place, and there is room for efficiency. And AI um, and streamlining and automating a lot of systems can can really improve the I would say not the frontline stuff, but the the back room stuff of what the military does. So I think to, to answer your first question, it, AI and just autonomous systems overall can really streamline everything that we do across the Pentagon. The challenges, I think, are, are that people are concerned about runaway weapons. They're concerned about Terminators. Uh, you know, every science fiction novel or movie ever written or, or made has the these robots turning on their creators and society is doomed. So there are concerns. We have to we have to be very legal and ethical in the way that we build them. We have to go out there and make sure that we have fail safe systems. We have ways to ensure that um, we can turn these things off if they start to run away ways to prevent uh, un unanticipated escalation. There's a story out there of, of where they were using these AI systems on stock market trading for micro trades. Mm -hmm. And there was there were several stock market crashes. They call, um, call them flash crashes where those systems started outbidding one another just in, in real time and they mm -hmm. ran out of control. So if you can have a flash crash of the stock market, you don't want to have a flash war created that wasn't intentional. That would be devastating. And so you really need to have the best and brightest focused on this. And so there were some in industry out there who were concerned about the potential impacts of doing of using this technology in the military, which makes sense. Um, but we really need them to partner with us uh, to make sure that we are all doing the best that we can from a from a capability standpoint to make sure we don't have those problems. And also like minded people who are ethically concerned, uh, making sure that we have the right safeguards in place. So I imagine this is an area where you must engage in uh, frequent and regular contact with the private sector. And uh, is there, are, do you find that there's a consensus among, um, you know, leaders in terms of the left and right limits of how this is channeled and harnessed? I, I think there's a growing consensus in that, in that area. I, I, I think, again, there was initial concern that this was just going, if, if used in warfare, this could just be uh, unleashed um, here in the United States. I believe we are gaining that consensus with industry and with academia. There's been a lot of outreach with the Pentagon. They've established what I call an embassy in Silicon Valley. It's the Defense Innovation Unit, but I, 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 don't, I think it's an embassy out there to help bridge the gap. It's really doing great things. 
Others are doing that. And here in the United States, uh, I, I think we've achieved that. Globally, I think there's still a lot of concern. I think there are concerns that other nations out there aren't quite as committed to either the law or ethics um, when it comes to AI, just because of the tremendous potential. And so there are concerns about whether those nations will follow the rules. So, so it, it still seems kind of fuzzy to me, right? As I'm sure it does to a lot of people. If you were to paint a vivid picture of what it would look like as far as being leveraged uh, and empowering a, uh, a battle leader 15 years, 10 years from now, whatever it is, what would it look like? Uh, is, there, is there like a picture you can paint in terms of how it would integrate into a unit of human beings that are executing a mission downrange? Yeah, I think if I were to paint kind of three different changes, one would be a, um, a better vision of what's going on. There's so, so many connect the dots type activities that are required in battle to figure out what is going on in the battlefield. Everyone understands the chaos of war is sort of a traditional fixture on, in any combat situation. Because of AI's capability to go out there and, and synthesize a lot of data and, and, and try to connect the dots on that and put it together and then convey it more clearly, there's hope that there would be a better picture of, of what's going on and where, and that could lead to hopefully something like less civilian casualties, right. and a, a, a less inhumane endeavor, because war is just an inherently uh, uh, ugly thing. Uh, but, but if we can cut out the unnecessary uh, pain to non-combatants, I think that's a good thing. Second area is on the actual targeting. I still think we need to have humans making some of the key decisions, but I think that can be aided and sped up by the by some of these machines that are helping detect using facial recognition technology, saying, hey, I think we've detected this person who is an enemy commander who uh, is a potential target. And then the person can verify that and say, yes, go. And that can be done faster and more efficiently than would have been done by humans, just intelligence analysts yeah. by themselves. And then the third area is the far less sexy area, but I think it's important is the behind the scenes stuff that I mentioned before. Smart maintenance is one of those areas, mm -hmm. you know, that, that if you, you, a lot of cars nowadays will, will monitor your driving habits, monitor your repairs, your oil changes, and, and the same for all the other drivers that are out there, compare that data and tell you exactly when to change your oil to optimize the time. That sort of thing can save billions across the Pentagon with as we apply it to ships, mm -hmm. and airplanes, and trucks. Yeah, that, that's gonna. That's an exciting future. Um, it'll be interesting to see how 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 much is it already here. I mean, I you talk say, about the the vehicle issue, but in DoD, how much is it kind of already? It is a reality. At the beginning stages, it's everywhere. We 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 are probably the world's biggest user of AI. We have like a thousand formal AI programs. Uh, very few of them are dealing with weapons, actually. But the truth is we're building into everything. So self-driving supply trucks, a lot of times there's no need to put a, a driver in that, you know, making this this run from Baghdad to Mosul in Iraq, where you're likely to get bombed. Um, driverless trucks in, in some cases for supply. But that sort of technology is being infused everywhere. We're using our court reporters are using voice recognition technology to create their records of trial. We use it in our litigation for, for army army litigators. But really, it's infused in every little area of, and it, it's growing. And it's not just the military. I think corporate America and uh, and most major organizations across the country are trying to use it to streamline their processes and just cut costs and be more efficient. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's let's 
come up to like the current day. Um, the uh, and this has to do with kind of the leadership challenges associated. What you talked about the self confidence of lawyers. Uh, when I was a deputy assistant secretary at DHS uh, in the organization that I was essentially functioning as the COO of, we had uh, about twelve hundred attorneys. Um, what do you see as um, unique factors in inspiring and leading uh, a large cadre of attorneys? Well, you know, I, I, I think any leader has to tailor, it's the responsibility of a leader to tailor the leadership style and leadership approach to the organization that you're leading. And when you're leading lawyers, you're leading people who are intelligent, they're capable, they're driven, they want to succeed. And they need the, what they need and deserve are the tools and resources in order to succeed. Everyone wants to be doing meaningful work. It's just like it's human nature. There are, you can find exceptions to that rule. But the, for the most part, we want to be doing legitimate work. We want the tools to do it. We want to be appreciated and recognized for the work that we're doing. And these are just natural human things that, that lawyers, even lawyers, uh, fall, fall prey to these, these human tendencies. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, when I... When I first decided to go to law school, I told my mother that I was going to law school and she, without batting an eye and totally seriously looked at me and said, you want to be a lawyer? I thought we raised you better than that. <laughs> um, I think she's come around a little bit now, but the, but the truth is lawyers are fantastic and they're, they're re they really are easy to lead because of, because of their natural drive and, and, and willingness and, and, and desire to get stuff done. But like everybody, they need the tools, they need the resources, they need the setup, and we all have to work together to accomplish things. You know, very, very few things in the law can you just go out there on your own and operate as a, as a loan operator and get something done. We're doing stuff as part of a team. And teamwork, uh, it has certain dynamics that go along with it. And we all, and if you're a leader of that team, you need to understand human nature and try to try to, try to lead that team effectively. Do you find that... Um a team of uh, lawyers are, I mean, because I, I hadn't been to law school, but my understanding is there's a, a great emphasis on critical thinking. Um, I would imagine it puts more of a premium on having to um, pot potentially explain or lay out why a certain course of action is being pursued versus another. I'm just curious as to whether that's something that you've, you've detected a difference in from any other organization you've led. Uh, well, you know, I've been for the for the past twenty five years. I've been exclusively in legal organizations, but and but you're right that that characterization is absolutely correct. It's the critical thinking um, that I think allow a lawyer on a staff, whether you're on a whether you're on a staff of a of a legal command, mm -hmm. or say a staff of a military command, or whether you're a corporate counsel, a, a corporation, whether you're a law firm advising clients. That sort of critical thinking, I, I think, is helpful to the clients. That's what we owe our clients. So various but very much a central aspect of what lawyers do for their clients. Yeah. Well, in this role, what excites you the most about your, the, your responsibilities? For me, I love the ability to, to get out and see people. You know, I, I, I see these organizational charts out there, Kumar, and they, you know, in the military, you know, the military loves hierarchy. The military loves these organizational charts and they always have a bunch of people at the bottom and they have some general at the top. And I think it's misleading because, it suggests that the person at the top is the most important. I would flip that thing over and say, it's the people in the trenches. It's the people trying the cases. It's the paralegal out there 
at a, at a forward battalion. It's the attorney who is really out there giving advice directly to the clients that are the most important. And all of the rest of us support that person. And so for me, when I can get out there to the to the front lines of the, of the legal community and talk to those lawyers that are actually sitting, the ones that are in court, arguing the cases, making a difference for their clients out there. That is satisfying because it tells, tells me what, it reminds me what my role is overseeing and supporting those attorneys and those paralegals out there. So to, the furthest I can get forward to see them is what excites me. I, I love that you said that. I mean, that's the classic servant leader model, right? Is to flip that pyramid upside down. And now everyone's looking up to the people that are actually encountering the daily challenges and frustrations and, and are, are, as you indicated earlier, the best ones situated to innovate and figure out yeah, how to respond to them. Yeah. yeah well, what, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. So what most frustrates you about this role? You know, I, I, did, I did talk about the Pentagon being a bureaucracy with, with 3 million people. And, uh, you know, at the headquarters, we have some really fantastic processes in place to ensure that all stakeholders have an opportunity to provide relevant and appropriate input. What that means is that things often are slow in, in a bureaucracy. And it be, I told you, I confessed, I'm not a very patient person. So it's that, it's that slowness of a large organization uh, that I and many other people find a, a little frustrating at times. I, I understand the importance and the reason we have that. And, and overall, it's, it's, I would say that does more good than harm, uh, but it still can be frustrating on some days. So what do you say though to those that say it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission? I mean, particularly as a lawyer, right? I would think, because you look at risk in, in different ways, not just not just operational, right? I mean, so I'm curious about that. Well, you know, we, we learned that early on, the importance of initiative. And I've always been one that I forgive initiative. But the truth is, it depends on the circumstances. There are some times where you're like, if you're going to ask forgiveness later for that, it, well, you're going to need a good defense attorney because you just really screwed up bad on something that's, that matters a lot. And so it, on some decisions, I'd say that's a terrible approach. On others, I'd say it's exactly the right approach. So I, I hate to do a cookie cutter, one size fits all yeah. type answer and say that it depends. How's that for a lawyer answer? Met T. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, your, your responsibilities also include uh, oversight of diversity and inclusion, which has become increasingly prominent in, uh, in recent years. How do you ensure that, it, that that program is lifted up, that you signal its importance and it's not something that's just, you know, handled as a finger drill or just you know, how do you invest people in really uh, honoring and making it come alive in your organization? That's, I, I'm glad you asked about that because we have long believed in the importance of diversity in, in our legal team. Um, the legal community as a whole does not do a very good job of, of reflecting society's makeup. But we in the, in the Army's legal community, we, we want to make sure that we are at least doing a great job of reflecting the legal community within us. And we do a fantastic job of that. We've always emphasized that. We've always put a premium on it. We've always assigned one of our generals. We only have five generals on the Army's legal team. One of the five is, is aligned with each one of the minority bar associations out there. We're aligned and we've had a longstanding relationship with them. And it's great. It's a great opportunity to get these fantastic attorneys that are diverse and represent different viewpoints into the JAG course where they can really jump in and start trying cases and practicing law much sooner than they would in a law firm setting or in a corporate counsel setting. We can give them leadership and lawyering opportunities that you just can't get elsewhere. We don't offer the same salaries, mind you, but we offer meaningful legal work that's pretty phenomenal. And 
we've also long recognized the value of diverse perspectives. And it's, it's been said like if, if everyone thinks the same way you do, uh, then everyone else is unnecessary. Yeah. So we, having different perspectives and, and the diversity that comes with, with that just helps the organization be stronger. What I will say is the res, as a result of this past year, it's actually been helpful to us because it's shed some light on how we've been doing some things for a while. It's allowed us to get the resources to expand our program. We just added our first full-time diversity, equity, and inclusion um, officer. We have a, a colonel who's coming as one of our, he's one of, currently sitting as one of the judges on our Court of Appeals, and he is taking the helm and leading this organization full-time from here going forward. And that's just a great, an, another great step in the right direction. Yeah, oh, that's excellent. Um, we're coming down to the end. If okay. you were gonna boil down your leadership philosophy to three essentials, what would they be? Okay, three essentials. Remember we were taught that the, the simplest basic leadership principles when we were brand new into the military, they taught us you have to do two things. You have to take care of your people and you have to accomplish your mission. I still believe in the power of those. I, and and there's, it's a, there's often a tension. You, you, can't, you can't do everything all the time and, and it works out, you'll, you'll burn out. Sometimes you have to surge and, and really take care of somebody. Other times you have to Kind of focus on the mission like you know if you're an accountant and it's tax season you know it's not a great time for you to be letting folks go on vacation and now's the time you buckle down we'll take the vacation in the fall uh, but those two things i say are one and two the third thing i'd say is have fun like i sometimes get, have people come to me and ask me about career advice and i say you, you should do exactly what you want to do because that is a guaranteed win and if you're having fun you, you're likely to be doing good work because you like what you're doing and that is just win, win overall. Kamar, uh, can yeah. I can I add a number four? I just thought it's one of yeah, add a number four for sure. It's a bonus. <laughs> a lawyer would, would say <laughs> would say something like that. Listen, there's a, one other rule that we have, and it, it, I, I, I've talked about this one. It says a basic leadership principle: don't be a jerk. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but for leaders, it's different. It goes beyond that. It's it's don't tolerate a jerk in an organization. Yeah. Because it's so easy to say, man, he does really good work or, or she's good at what she does. And you just kind of turn a blind eye to the fact that someone is a jerk. But the way I see it is despite the great work that they're doing, if someone's a jerk, they're going to be a poison in a unit. And they're going to cause more harm and disruption to the rest of the team uh, than is worth the, the goodness. So was, you've got to either turn that jerky behavior around or get rid of that person because they've got no place in an organization that operates as a team. Yeah, then you own it if it, if it's happening in front of you and you're doing nothing to stop oh, it. Oh, absolutely. And then, and then even on a more, I, I like your point there because I think even on a more subtle level, um, something that that's you know that that's probably pretty common is gossip. Um, you know, saying detraction, making detractive, you know, detracting comments about coworkers. All of that can be really corrosive. Yeah, so I, really, I really, I really appreciate what you're saying, and I also, uh, it really resonates when you talk about have fun because, you know, again, leadership is about influence, and if you're having fun and you're deriving a sense of reward from it, it's infectious. Oh, I, mean, I agree. can't I, help. It, it. It's contagious. Good yeah. attitudes are contagious, but bad attitudes are just as contagious. Yeah. So, yeah, you make yeah. a difference. Yeah. Well, um, what did you believe at the beginning of your career that you feel differently about today? I would say at the beginning of my career, I assumed that everyone saw things the way I, I do. 
And, and now I know that is so far from the truth. We talked a little bit about diverse perspectives, diverse experiences, different backgrounds. And I've learned that you have to look at things from other people's perspectives. You have to see things through their eyes, especially if you're going to lead them. They might not have the same exact desires, the same influences that, that you do. And as a, as a leader, it's your responsibility to see what is it that drives them. And I've really gained a tremendous appreciation for looking at things through the eyes of others. Uh, that comment resonates on so many levels, right? I mean, it's in the not being a jerk and demonstrating high emotional intelligence, but also in the st in, from the standpoint of diversity, equity, inclusion, yeah. being able to uh, um, empathize with with folks that are, you know, in a majority culture, wh whatever it may be. It doesn't have to be. I mean, it can. They they don't feel comfortable being their authentic self. And being able, I think, to be attuned and to be able to recognize and pick up on that and, and keep working towards promoting team belonging. Oh, I love yeah. that. I think that's great. I totally agree. Yeah. Well, uh, where can I, our listeners learn more about you and your organization? GoArmyJag.com. Okay. Go Army Jag. I didn't know there was a special website for that. <laughs> yeah, no, they, I would say young lawyers or law students out there. Um, just, our whole team is on there. We have some unique roles out there. It's a lot of fun. I am here, you know, 30 years after I thought I'd be here because I'm still having fun. It's a, it's an absolute blast. I, I'm a little embarrassed that you knew me at age 17, Kumar. So you, <laughs> you knew that earlier, younger self, and but but hopefully you can see a, a bit of a transformation. Uh, absolutely. Well, you know what's what's really interesting about that is because we haven't seen each other. I mean, the last time we saw each other, we were commenting before the interview was a. Uh, uh, was it was that 20 years ago or so? I, I, I don't know. I think it was. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 So it, it's it's really uh, it's so interesting. I, I, your point, you know, especially when we go to our reunions or things like that, you have the snapshot of what we were like as cadets. And it's so uh, I don't know. There's just something about it to see, you know, especially you all that have stayed in the military and have continued to serve. And you're now, you know, uh, general officers. It's. It's really quite inspirational. I, I really want to thank you for sharing your lessons learned uh, during a very varied and um, and career filled with diverse assignments and service to our country. I can't tell you how cool it is to see how you and, and our other classmates have gone on to serve our nation in significant roles of substantial impact. So thank you, Pat, for your service. Thank you for making your, your time available today to share your thoughts, your perspectives with our audience. And uh, we definitely need to get together and uh, see each other in the flesh here soon. I completely agree, Kamara. I'll tell you, it's just as fantastic to see you so successful, a CEO in that suit, looking great, sounding great. <laughs> so thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care. You too. Take care.